Welcome to the Lisa Fisher Said Podcast. I'm Lisa Fisher, a longtime broadcaster and journalist in Arkansas, who's been in front of a microphone or a camera since the 1980s. I think of myself as the queen of Arkansas media. For this episode, we're going to help you get rid of that fat. My guest is Dr. Anthony Balduzzi, a naturopathic physician in the Phoenix area and the man behind the Fit Father and Fit Mother projects and he's targeting men and women in their 40s. You'll get to meet him right after this. No matter what season of life you're in, whether you're an empty nester, you're a college kid, if you're in fifth grade, there's a question that comes across your mouth and your brain every day, and it's, what's for dinner? Well, I've got someone who can help you with that. I've been telling you about the Ralston Family Farms and their outstanding six varieties for many, many months now as they are sponsors of the Lisa Fisher Said podcast. But what you don't know is on their website, they have a whole host of recipes to help you when someone asks you that question, what's for dinner? You might be asking it yourself because tonight in the Fisher home, we're having chicken, broccoli, and rice casserole. Thanks to the Basmati rice that's available with the Ralston Family Farms. This 10 generation farming family, the ones who are in North Central Arkansas, non-GMO. Guys, this is the best rice you can find. It's available at select Costco stores and wherever you can find it. If you need to know where it is, go to RalstonFamilyFarms.com. She won most talkative in high school, and she has been running her mouth ever since. Welcome to the Lisa Fisher Said Podcast with your host, Lisa Fisher. Okay, Dr. Balduzzi, I want to hear your story. What made you have a life goal to help men and women get fit? Where did you start? Well, I think I kind of stumbled into health and fitness by accident in that growing up, I had the unique experience of watching my dad get very sick. Um, When I was young, he was diagnosed with cancer. And over the course of 10 years, multiple brain surgeries, chemotherapy, I watched his health whittle away. And he eventually passed away when he was just 42. Mm. And I was nine at the time, my little brother was six, and it, it rocked our family's world. Um, But I think in these tragic experiences, what I've certainly learned in my life is that there's a silver lining. And the silver lining for me was that I got to experience a deep appreciation for one, our mortality at a young age, and also for what vibrant health can give you. Because I saw my dad like work and bust his butt in his career. And as he lost his health, I saw him lose so many things that he loved in life. So it really fired me up from a young age to study health, fitness, and nutrition, to get myself strong and healthy. Like in my young mind, I wanted to be so strong that cancer couldn't get me. But in turn, I wanted to help figure out how can busy people, busy parents out there who are juggling work, family, life responsibilities, how do you actually stay healthy over the long haul? So it ignited a passion from from those roots. Well, your focus is really people over 40, right? Correct. Because um, have you tipped the over 40 mark yet? Not yet, no. But you understand that metabolically, it goes to hell in a handbasket. Yeah. That things are going along swimmingly. That's why the people in Manhattan are running in the morning, go into the office, work in Wall Street all day, uh, drinking too much, but they're still fit. And then, and then when they're 40, all of a sudden men get this big abdomen. Women mm-hmm. will have cortisol also as well in their abdomen. And then everything starts to change. So can you tell me the science then? What happens? Well, I want to be I want to be very straight with you. I mean, I've I've helped probably close to fifty thousand families in over hundred countries, and I think there's a big discussion right now that hormones are the culprit, right? You know, and we can talk about 
the metabolic changes and the hormonal changes that happen. But a lot of it is is just the fact that as you get older, um, you just have less wiggle room, right? I guess we could say the metabolism yeah. does it does decrease. And if you're doing the same things that you were doing and you don't make changes, like the weight will slowly pile up. There's stress, there's busyness, there's, okay. So let's start to unpack this. Um, I mean, certainly as we get older, the metabolic rate slows down. I mean, this is just a fact of life. So as we continue eating the sum number of calories, we're gonna gain weight over time. Um, for men specifically, we're losing testosterone, we're losing muscle mass. Women are also having similar decreases, let alone the menopause, perimenopause, where estrogen's all over the place. Um, this can lead to sleep disturbances, which dysregulates the metabolism even further. I don't actually enjoy focusing on the doom and gloom of the, the changes that happen in the body, because look, this is just like a natural thing. Our bodies go through this cycle of, of effectively becoming less vital as we age, unless we start to do the things like new behaviors into our routine, like higher intensity exercise, like standardizing certain meals of the day, like breakfast, intermittent fasting. I'm more interested in like, what are the tools we can implement to someone's life besides the, the conversation that's like, woe is me, the hormones are going out of whack, because the hormones are part of it. But we have thousands of program members who start regimented healthy breakfast, they start doing uh, high intensity interval training at workouts at home, and without doing any different medications, no bioidentical hormone replacement therapy, wow. they can lose 100 pounds. And, and get six pack abs. So like, look, hormones can help, but I think the core thing was people were listening to this is that there needs to be lifestyle changes at the basis of this. Um, and lifestyle changes around sleep, nutrition, and exercise, I think are the keys because our body can endogenously tap into these family youth hormones, but a lot of it's not just like take external medications per se. Well, let's talk about sleep. I, I really, I'm a health coach and I do focus some of my attention to sleep, but I just saw where Dave Asprey just a couple of weeks ago said there was a new study. We don't have to get the eight hours we always thought we needed. He said some people really do well on six and a half, six, six and a half hours. What's your philosophy? What's your thinking on all that? Totally. I mean, we're all so individual. There are certain people who need far less sleep than others, and it's also determined based on exercise demands. You know, how much how much physical activity are you doing is going to necessitate how much rest and recovery you specifically need. Uh, I think there's good ways to be engaged. Like if you're if you're waking up in the morning and you still feel like tired, or you wish you would be getting more sleep, or if you're in a routine of regularly eating caffeine to to get you going in the morning then there's probably improvements to be made on the sleep front um, it's for each of us i think in this health journey to start to pay more attention to our bodies to figure out what actually works for us uniquely and to, instead of these blanket prescriptions like blanket prescriptions carbs are bad or you shouldn't do you need this amount of sleep is not as simple um in in practice so yeah sure fine i, I think that people could certainly sleep less I, i'd say as a by and large i think people should probably target around seven hours of sleep as you get older there's natural lower production of melatonin we have phones that are kicking off all that blue light um I, if someone wants to actually put some data to this and test this you can start checking your heart rate in the morning um, is a heart rate and like certainly all these trackable things that track heart rate variability as well are easy ways to see if your body is getting enough sleep um what we find though is for people who are trying to go on weight loss diets, if they don't fix the sleep first, you're kind of pushing the ball uphill from a metabolic perspective. Because when you do not sleep, um, your cortisol gets dysregulated. I mean, mm -hmm. elevated cortisol stays persistent, and that is a problem for the metabolism. But you also get an increase in the hormone, the hormone, or the hunger hormone ghrelin, which makes you hungry all the time, and you're more insulin resistant. So when you do eat carbohydrate, insulin floats around for a lot longer. So we're huge proponents of helping fix sleep first, and what this means 
means is like simple improvements. Creating a, a regimented bedtime routine, cutting out some light at night, waking up roughly the same time every day, um, and, and just prioritizing it. Like, I think there's a, there's a culture with busy working parents that to sleep is the thing to sacrifice, and I'd rather just make the time to miss the sleep to get up and get the extra workout, but that's not really the best move. The best move is to prioritize sleep over exercise. I think sleep is very much on par with good quality nutrition, and then exercise is like a tier two consideration after that. What's the heart rate range then in the morning of uh, a sign of good rest? Well, I think it's it, it's like it's more that you need to set your baseline because everyone has a different baseline heart okay. rate. If someone's out here as a triathlete, they might have a, a 40 or 50 mm -hmm. beat heart rate, but someone else might have a 60 or 70. What you will find is after you have a bad a, a night of poor sleep or your body is in a in, is in an attack state, your heart rate will be higher, maybe in the tune of 10 to 15 beats per minute higher because you have more sympathetic tone. Two branches of the nervous system, sympathetic, parasympathetic. Sympathetic's gonna get us going, parasympathetic's rest, digest, recover. For long health and for a good long life, we wanna be in primarily parasympathetic tone. By, by far, like we wanna be able to activate sympathetically, but we wanna be dominantly parasympathetic. And the problem is we have a modern culture that's drive, 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 stimulants, not enough sleep, higher intensity exercise on top of that, and we're in a sympathetic state. And it's no, it's no question, what's the organ that gets taxed the most by the sympathetic nervous system? It's the heart. It's no, it's no right. wonder, coupled with inflammatory fats and all these things, that we have so many heart problems in the immune system as well, right? You want to crush your immune system, be in a stressed state. Cortisol is one of its functions is actually to be anti-inflammatory and to downregulate the immune system. So I, I think if we are concerned about hormones after 40, and sleep is one of the ways that the body can help regulate its hormones maximally, so it's really important to emphasize anything we can do to sleep. As we get older, we produce less melatonin, so things like taking melatonin and magnesium and a nighttime tea are simple things that I think are helpful. Now, the magnesium, magnesium is wonderful for all the different types, because there's mm -hmm. oxide and all the different, the citrate and all these different things. Mm -hmm. um, but now, and so I understand how it works, because I use several different types. But nice. melatonin, does it have a short half-life? Like, do you take it right before you go to bed or do you take it to wind down? The, the goal is to, is to sink. Our circadian rhythm is completely tied to the sun and the light dark cycles. Like these bodies are like ancient machines operating in a modern world. So when the light goes down in the environment, we start to release some melatonin. Now, I'd say as a general rule of thumb, you know, I'd take melatonin maybe an hour and a half to two hours before you go okay. to bed, you know, but like, but that, that's also like, if you're going to bed at midnight, I wouldn't necessarily take melatonin at 10. You could take it a little earlier. The, the idea is to entrain your pattern into something that is going to be more natural. I mean, even better than, than taking melatonin, which I think is like a tool that can be used, is to really be very conscious about uh, the proper amounts of light, both in the morning and in the night. So the way it works is absolutely amazing. You get out in the morning and the sun is up mm -hmm. and it's not too hot outside. You know, the sun rays come into our eyes, hit a particular area of the brain called the suprachiasmatic nucleus that produces serotonin and melatonin. Well, it creates serotonin. Later in the day, the pineal gland is going to convert serotonin into melatonin. So good circadian rhythm starts in the morning with sunshine in your eyes and on your skin. You get vitamin D3 production, but you also get serotonin production. And morning sunshine has been proven by research to smooth out the morning cortisol rhythm. So if someone's worried about cortisol, like sunshine actually helps the body regulate that more optimally. And then at night, if you stay away from the phones, like when it's starting to get dark outside, and now we're recording this in wintertime, that's happening pretty early right now. But as it gets darker outside, you wanna make sure you have protectors on those phones. Maybe you're wearing your blue blocking devices. Things like this are important considerations for health in today's day and age. I think it is harmful for our kids and for us to have all these bright devices just blasting us all the time at night.
How much? So I go out every morning and um, get the, my morning sunshine, then I exercise. But how much, how long am I looking into that big uh, fireball in the sky in the morning? <laughs> yeah, and I'm not going to say you stare directly into it, but I mean, it's just like glancing here and there. Maybe you're outside for like 10, 15 minutes. Okay. You know, I think it depends on, well, there's a couple benefits we're getting. Like I want I don't know if there's an exact measured time that you should be out there to like stare into the sun. I like glance and just make sure the light is getting into your eyes. And then the amount of vitamin D3 production, you want to get as much of that from, from the sunlight during the seasons that you can is dependent on your skin tone. So, you know, it's uh, weird when you start adapting this lifestyle of running after the sun, that the sun's not a villain. Because yeah. we, we've been told that the right. sun was a villain and we were going to all die of cancer. No, we were dying of cancer because of the stuff to protect us from that right. beautiful fireball in the sky. But now I even roll the, when I drive, I'm not using my sunglasses as much, mm -hmm. trying to get in my eyes. Yeah. And I'm rolling down windows, opening the sunroof. I mean, mm -hmm. all the things that I used to protect myself from because I was told that I might get a wrinkle. Well, I can buy something to get rid of a wrinkle, yeah. you know, but I can't buy the, what the cortisol my body needs in the morning to get me going. Correct. So it's, it's very true, yeah. Yeah, it's just the weight, the figurative weight of what the sun provides to us that we for so long, that kids are inside now all the time. I try to, when I see my grandkids, I go, let's go outside. Because mm -hmm. you know, people are, we're almost institutionalized with devices and everything's inside, especially obviously during COVID, things were really locked down because you are in the sunniest part. I mean, you're almost on the equator there in Phoenix. Yeah. I mean, it is sunny all the time because you have like a five minute monsoon season in February, I think, <laughs> right. that yeah. that's it. So, and I've even heard um, some healthcare people who practice the way I like naturopaths and stuff, he's an MD, but they moved to Phoenix in order to get more sunlight. So your vitamin D is probably great. Yes, certainly. Yeah. And I mean, not everyone has the has the benefit of living in a place that has sunshine all year round and coming into wintertime. This is a really good reason to supplement and to test your vitamin D3 levels. Have your doctor test that, you know, at least once a year, but maybe twice a year and, and supplement through the winter. What's amazing about vitamin D3 is you can take a ton of it uh, very safely. I mean, you know, certainly like the 5,000 IUs that are in many supplements, no problem. I mean, they have long-term studies of people taking 100,000 IUs a day for months and months and months. And I mean, it's going to depend. I'm not saying someone should necessarily do that, but I'm saying that if you're in a place, you're not getting as much sunshine and there's a seasonal aspect to this in the wintertime, you're not getting as much, uh, I'd recommend some vitamin D3. It's, it's great for so many reasons. And then what is your goal with your vitamin D diagnostically? Um, cause you know, under 30s low, I finally yeah, 50, got mine to 50, 50 to 70, 50 okay, to 70 is great. I just got mine to 50 and, um, because we traveled to the West and we were, you know, I just know I was soaking up all that sunshine. You know, I, like I said, it's my discipline now to get outside, mm -hmm. but I feel great. And in fact, yeah. I've knocked off like five pounds. I'm an intermittent faster. Long, yeah. It's my fifth year to intermittent fast. So I've all, it's not like I've changed my diet or anything. I just think that I've gotten... I've worked harder to get more vitamin D and plus it gives you so much more energy. Yeah. I don't I don't have caffeine or anything. And so a what about mood. Yeah. Yeah. And a totally, mood too. totally in a better mood. Yeah. And it's fighting my immune system's better. I mean all the things. Um could that level get too high? Like is over seventy too high? You know, I, I think the like there are, they've shown benefits, at least in men, the study that comes to mind, that men get actual testosterone boosting benefits over seventy. Wow. So, you know, I don't know. I mean, I think here's the cool thing. In health as a philosophy, 
anytime you can feed a pathway in its most upstream point, it's gonna regulate itself. So what I mean by that is the the more natural sunshine you can get for vitamin D is like your body will regulate the levels most effectively. Oh, I see, yeah. You know, it's like, it's like, it's like anytime we can feed a pathway upstream, you're gonna get mm-hmm. the most information and in, in downstream effect that you want versus like working down here. Now, sometimes we need to work down here in the weeds. Someone has a problem methylating a certain kind of vitamin, we need to give them right. methyl B12, right? And, and this is where modern medicine is really effective. That being said, more sunshine, very good. And I, and I and it comes down to when you get into super high levels of vitamin D, let's say over like 100, um, then you're measuring other the effects of, of calcium metabolism and other things. But it, you, you have to work really hard to get 100. I mean, you've been taking supplements and getting in the sun and you're at 50, yeah, right? and I'm just at 50, right. right. But I, I've ooched it up from 22 a few years ago. I mean, nice. you know, but I've really, really been working hard. I did read uh, about a girl, um, a biohacker, who says she even gets in a, I would never recommend this, but a tanning bed once a week for two minutes. Will mm-hmm. that help your vitamin D? Yeah, definitely will. You're getting the, you're, you're getting the same UVB rays in, in the skin that's going to help increase vitamin D. So does red light therapy provide that? I'm unsure about that. I think okay. red light therapy provides other benefits, but I yeah, actually, well, sure. I mean, if, I had, if I had to say like unconfirmed, I don't think red light is what specifically is producing vitamin D. I think it's the UVB rays that you're getting from the tanning bed, but red light is going to provide other health benefits. Yeah, because I bought the Juve Light. You can actually look into it. Mm-hmm. It's good for your retinas. It's yep. good for your eye health and all that. And so I think that maybe in a tanning bed, you're supposed to close your eyes. It's been so long since I've been in a tanning bed. And, and you know, now we have talked bad about them for years. But if, you know, if in a pinch, you have to have your vitamin D and you need it's to get it It's the dose that makes the poison with many of these things. Good. Right? Yeah, so, no, right. I mean, that is the thing. Like these things are all tools. It just depends on how we deploy them. Yeah. Okay. So sleep is part of the building blocks for yes. good health, fitness, um, hormone production, and our hormones communicate with each other. So we're yes. we're trying trying to get optimum. If sleep's number one, then tackle me or ha- t- show me how you tackle then nutrition. Okay. My approach to nutrition is that I think a lot of people, especially in this health and fitness space, they major in the minors. And what I mean by that is they spend a lot of their time um, dissecting you know, this diet versus that diet, this macronutrient composition versus that, where in reality, what actually moves the needle for people is creating consistent behaviors. It's like, how do we get you to create more healthy meals with foods that work for your body over the next 50 years, not over the next, you know, week or 12 weeks while we're following a diet plan. And this comes down to behavioral psychology and structure. What we do with our fit father and fit mother program members is very effective is that we help them standardize a couple meals of their day. As busy people, we get up, we think one of the best things you can do is standardize your first meal of the day. And that first meal does not have to happen at 8 a.m. It could be intermittent fasting and happen at noon or whenever you break it, but we believe that there is benefit for busy people and busy parents to standardize that first meal of the day, make it something healthy and consistent where you don't need to exercise willpower and thought, whether it's your go-to amazing superfood shake, whether it's overnight oatmeal, whether it's some kind of egg recipe, it's dialed in, it's go-to, it's every single day and it makes you feel great with healthy foods you love. And if you standardize your first meal of your day and you forecast that out through the rest of your life, that's like one third of your meals by and large that you've now made good decisions. So the impact of that can't even be quantified and it is so much more impactful than necessarily like focusing on some some smaller minutia things. Um, we also help our members you know, do that effectively, get, create go-to options 
like go-to options for their lunch or their snacks, like predefined go-to options. You know what they are and you're just kind of like deploying those. And we believe that you need to balance consistency with variety. So consistency in those early meals of the day, more variety at dinner because we often are with friends and family or trying different things. So this is a time where you can have a little more variety. These frameworks are more important than studying the very, very minor specifics of, of particular foods and how they affect our bodies. Because as we get to get structure, what we get to do is also have awareness in terms of what kinds of foods we like and what kind of, how certain foods affect our bodies. Um, the, the goal destination we arrive at is we have very consistent meals that we can regiment throughout the week and we have awareness over which foods make our bodies feel good, meaning less gas and bloating, less mucus production, and, and, and that just comes down to a little bit of experimentation. But it's tough to really experiment if you can't stay consistent and create a consistent, like, clean basis. And we believe that creating these go-to meals is, is one of the key strategies to do that. Do you uh, consider food elimination then in order to show sensitivities? Yeah, I mean, like with our program members, we don't have them do strict food elimination diets, although I think there's a ton of merit to it. Like there's 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 a lot of merit to doing food elimination, getting rid of all the major allergens and then doing food reintroductions. What we find is we basically give our program members like recipes for pretty much hypoallergenic morning shakes and stuff like this. And they're they're kind of eliminating without needing to be as super regimented about it. I think allergies are, are, are certainly a big component of this. And for people listening, if they haven't gone down this rabbit hole of food allergies, my one small and gentle suggestion is to start to pay attention to the mucus production that you have after eating certain foods. Like just start to pay attention to when you eat something, do you feel like you're getting mucus production or is your nose and throat getting scratchy or do you have any GI gas and bloating? You can c- uncover these very dramatically by eliminating all these allergens for a period of time and then reintroducing foods one by one. I think that's a great practice, but you can also uncover them by just having more awareness to your everyday meals and and try to figure out, oh my gosh, I found out that dairy every time I eat it makes my face tingle and I get mucus production. That's a way of you realizing that then you steer your healthy diet in a way that doesn't include those foods. So dairy to me is the big offender with mucus production, but I know my husband um, gets nasopharyngeal with gluten like if he eats gluten it makes him clear his throat yep and everyone thinks the gluten is from here down it's a gut issue it's your immune system right which is all the entire tract right i mean it's certainly concentrated in the gi tract but you're you're absolutely right and and anytime it's like it's really easy to understand because one of the body's first defenses when there is some kind of allergen in the system is to produce mucus to bind things is what we do when we get the the cold and the flu like right yeah you know so like what happens when you get a you know like a cold or a nasal virus like your body's producing mucus to bind this stuff and like gunk it out like same thing that happens when the immune system responds to a foreign a protein that it does not it does not like in the form of gluten um or dairy or, or primary allergens so yeah i think i think it's it's we pretty much have our program members eliminate most wheat and dairy. Although we do believe that there are some people that can tolerate these things. And we have some program members who do like a sprouted organic Ezekiel bread and they do fine with that. For me, it doesn't make me feel as great, but some people can have bread and, and, and they can do just okay with that. So we almost kind of, kind of find the go-to foods that work for us. What is it magical about the Ezekiel bread that some people can tolerate? Cause it still has gluten in it, right? Correct. Yeah. So, Grains, when grains are uh, traditionally prepared, meaning they're soaked and they're sprouted, 
The process of doing so, the sprouting, actually removes a lot of these anti-nutrients. So gluten being one of them, phytic acid being another one, wheat germ, agglutinin being another one. The sprouting process, when the, 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 the germ is kind of, it's germinating and it's using a lot of the energy, it, it just gets rid of a lot of these things, increases enzymes that make things easier to digest. And some people just don't have an immune system that, that's that reactive to it. So gluten's like a part of the picture, but humans have been eating certain kinds of ancient wheat, like einkorn wheat for a very, mm -hmm. very long time. Mm -hmm. And I think it's not just a problem of like gluten is bad. I think it's a problem of like modern, modern wheat tends to cause problems for many people. And I think it's a multifaceted issue. It's not just the gluten proteins. There's also glyphosate and pesticides that are mm -hmm. probably a variable here. Um, there's also the fact that this wheat has been hybridized to have like a, a ton of more genetic material than or ancient wheats. Right. There are people who have gluten, frankly, they're like, I am 100% gluten sensitive, that if they had like some einkorn bread or some ancient wheat that was sprouted and prepared, have totally like, or feel totally fine afterwards. So. It gets a little complicated. Where do you find the einkorn? Where do you find those? You can, you can order it. <laughs> you can okay. order it online, and there's some cookbooks on it. Yeah, I mean, we used to my. We don't do it at, currently. Do it, but last year we were doing a lot of like at home einkorn, like basically like sprouted crackers. So you just kind of like leave them out, wow. let them sprout, and, they're, and there's good. You know, it, it's 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 a possibility. I think my my take my personal stance on wheat, and this is from me understanding my body and where I I don't seek out wheat it may find me on occasion. And if I'm like out somewhere or if I'm do, enjoying something, I have the ability to have a little bit of wheat and it's not gonna ruin me, but it's certainly not a go-to part of my life because it does give me a little bit of an allergic reaction. Well, and it's to me, for me, it's like uh, sugar addiction. I hadn't had gluten in a long time, had a bender last week because it was Thanksgiving. So yeah. I had, you know, bread this or I bread that. And then I want it every day. Like, yeah. it's like it unleashes this beast in me that now I'm thinking, oh, should I, I want it. I think I want a sandwich. Well, I never yeah. should I want a sandwich, but I want a turkey sandwich, you know, mm -hmm. or whatever it is. So I feel like the response, you know, I, and it is, it's very individual. And I also noticed too, that some of us, or I don't feel like I don't have it does give me a little arthritis in my big toe. I will say yeah. that. But um, more than that, it makes my autoimmune conditions worse. So it makes yeah. my antibody count tick up when mm -hmm. after back before I removed gluten from my diet, my antibodies were real high for my Hashimoto's. And now yeah, I, it's really kind of normal. I don't look like I have Hashimoto's. That's so. fantastic. And I think that's the case for many people, right? I mean, these, these things are good to take a break from for certain time. If weed is a big part of your life and you're looking to improve your health, like take it out for a while, see how you feel. Yeah. In fact, that's really what, uh, you know, after you read Wheat Belly by Dr. Mm -hmm. Bill Davis, and he was one of our instructors at the Institute for Integrative Nutrition in New York. And, you know, he even says he doesn't even like the wheat substitutes because mm -hmm. he said now we have a gluten-free society that's maybe and i'm paraphrasing just as sick as fat and fat as the gluten population mm -hmm. we had because they're just inflammatory foods or inflammatory ingredients in a lot of the things that are obviously know that are packaged i totally agree with him like anything that yeah. is a gluten-free substitute like they're using a lot of like low quality process, like different kinds of grains mm -hmm. that just don't happen to have, it's like, it's honestly typically modified tapioca starch, modified rice brands, yes, kinds yes, of things. Yes, and yes, like, yes. And it's just like processed, typically high glycemic, not great foods. I mean, the foods that are naturally gluten-free fruits, 
vegetables, mm-hmm. meats, fishes, like these, these kinds of things are, are, should be the basis of the diet. Yeah. And I mean, I'm not going to say you can't occasionally have your gluten-free piece of toast if that makes you feel right, but it, it definitely, if that becomes a staple, it's going to be affecting your, your GI tract for sure. Yeah. Uh, the other thing I think that kind of contributed to my little five pound weight loss that I, I really wasn't monitoring or anything, I've totally removed seed oils from my diet, mm. which was easy here because I could throw it all out and I'm a home cook. So that's mm-hmm. easy. The challenge is when you go to a restaurant, even the good restaurants, you know, totally. I say, can you cook that in olive oil or butter or ghee or tallow or pork lard? You know, they may not have all that, but depending on how farm to table it is or, you know, what they're using for their ingredients. But let's talk about those bad yeah. seed oils because then everyone panics. They go, what about avocado? I go, that's a fruit. <laughs> what yeah. about coconut? That's a fruit. Yeah. But what the seed oils, remember for years we were told that safflower oil would lower our cholesterol or, or, I mean, it was just crap we were told and it was crap we were ingesting. But let, explain to me the science behind the seed oils. Well, here's the deal. Some of these things may lower cholesterol, but that's just, that's just not the whole part of the picture. What we do know is a lot of these seed oils are incredibly inflammatory and they feed a lot of our inflammatory pathways without getting too complicated into the science of these. Um, you know, the things like the sunflower, the safflower, the peanut, the corn oil, like I know those are some of those are vegetable oils, but they're just inflammatory in the body. They, they create lots of downstream different metabolites that, that cause, ha- that kind of wreak havoc. The good news is that I think there are a few pretty much safe oils that one should use. Like you mentioned animal fats like lard or tallow. Mm-hmm. Um, extra virgin olive oil would be another great one. Typically I prefer that to be unheated because it's got so many good benefits. Um, coconut oil can be used as well, which is another great one. And then avocado oil and the natural fats and avocados are fantastic. And it's actually kind of freeing once you understand like the, the very clean, good fats, because then you can just kind of like use those for the majority of your cooking. And from those four or five fat sources, you can cook pretty much anything. Now, where you're going to find most of those seed oils are in certainly in restaurant cooked foods. I mean, they're using these things. They're probably using a lot of canola oil and other things. Um, and, and in a lot of packaged processed goods, like they're going to be, you're going to see sunflower oil pretty much as like the, the second oil in, in so many, uh, different jarred can type things. Um, and it's sad. And I think we're going to come to learn from modern nutrition as saturated fat is getting like, you know, de-villainized. And now we're starting to see that the seed oils that we recommend actually are way more problematic. And especially a lot of the butter substitutes, things kind of come full circle in our understanding. Uh, and it's good. I mean, it's bringing us back to like a more natural, less processed diet. Um, avocados are kind of like your best friend. I think they're just such a good oil. Um, avocado oil is such a good high heat oil, you know, cooking at high temperatures, yeah, it it's, is. Your, it's your go-to mm-hmm. oil, right? And then the avocado itself is, can be put on anything to help smooth out blood sugar. It has so many vitamins, minerals, um, and then extra virgin olive oil, you know, eat more olives, eat, you put EVOO on the basis of your salad dressing. And then for like my wife and I, you know, if we're making eggs, we'll use some butter, right? Some high quality grass fed butter is, an, is another great way to get some of those short chain fatty acids into your diet. You want to not have things that create inflammation, right? So this is sugar and this is a lot of the seed oils um, in, in, are probably two of the main sources. Hi friends, as you can see, I have a lot of enthusiasm about intermittent fasting. That's because it changed my life and the way I think back in 2017. In fact, it's infected every part of my life now in lowering our insulin loads that I became a student at the Institute for Integrative Nutrition in New York, and now I have my certification as an integrative nutrition health coach. 
That means that I'm seeing clients. I can do that through, obviously, Zoom calls. You can do that through FaceTime. You can do that one-on-one in person. And if you're interested in becoming a client of mine, you can just email me, healthcoaching at lisafishersaid.com. We'll put that link in the show notes, healthcoaching at lisafishersaid.com. Now, back to the program. What are some symptoms of inflammation that are obvious for everybody? That Because I think a lot of people think, oh, I'm having inflammation. But then when you kind of break down and talk about some things, but what do you think are some of the highlights of that? Yeah, I mean, generally, like I'll, I'll, I'll describe some symptoms, like a cluster of things. Generally, feeling uh, tired, lethargic, puffy, bloated, achy joints, um, your eyes might not be clear. There might be some redness in your eyes. Skin might have uh, eruptions and inflammations. You may have rashes or different kinds of manifestations on the skin. GI tract is all over the place. It's not having steady, consistent bowel movements. Some are loose, some are hard. Stomach aches, feeling like you're low-level bloated. Um, I think there's, there's, the inflammation is, is, is going to manifest in all these different organ systems. Um, so it's really seen as a full total thing. I just think looking at the signs across, if you feel like there's a particular system of your body that is not working well, um, and you know you've had some chronic lingering issues, chances are there's some kind of low-level inflammatory process happening there. And nutrition is probably the number one way that you can both create and eliminate inflammation, um, which is a really powerful tool, and that's why I'm, I'm such a huge fan of using nutrition to clean these things up. You know, it was Hippocrates who said all disease begins in the gut. And so, and we, because a lot of times you think, well, this can't be bothering me, but if it has to go through the gut, you're just mentioning some things. I was thinking as it goes through the gut, that's why you might have bursitis in your hip or Mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, you know what, the other things that people think are just from overuse when I know that can happen. But a lot of times if I notice that if I eliminate seed oils and inflammatory things like gluten, that's what I'm saying. Gluten gives, you know, I have a tiny bunion on my foot mm-hmm. and I didn't know that with a bunion comes sometimes an arthritic big toe. So I didn't know I had arthritis in my big toe until the doctors said, we did an x-ray, you have arthritis in your big toe. I went, oh, is that what that, because I don't have it anywhere else. That's what that feeling is. So when I remove gluten, that feeling goes away in that big toe. So again, the big toes manifesting from some things that are going through my gut. Yeah. For sure. Um, the other thing that I'm seeing is, and it's almost a virtue signaling of people who are thinking that they're going to be a vegan. I know this because I had to cook for a lot of people for Thanksgiving and a couple were vegans. And so I was trying to find a butter substitute and I, I, I'm not going to use a fake product. That, that was the, those were the options. I could have used these plant-based products. I was like, no, it's processed foods. It's as much crap to me mm-hmm. as the other thing. So I found, and don't run out and get it, goat butter. It is not delicious, but I I didn't use olive oil for this dish. I should have just used olive oil, avocado oil, and worked around it. But what are you saying about these but substitutes for the things God gave us that people want to eat so they can call themselves a vegan? Yeah, I mean the one the one thing that comes to mind when you mention that is like the Beyond Burger, like oh. these, like, like oh. that thing is like oh. that thing is like absolute trash. Like yeah. you wouldn't want to put that in your body. It's like, Absolutely, it's like, it's like I forget what it is. It's probably like modified uh, soy proteins plus pea protein plus a bunch Horrible. of seed oils Horrible and ma- for you. mashed up in some kind of like patty. And I mean, I, I 
I followed a vegan diet for a couple of years actually. So, you know, I, I, I have, I do have direct experience with this and like, that's just, unfortunately, anytime there's this vegan substitute, like this is the burger, you get this, it's almost crap. Like the true healthy vegan diet is, um, it's a lot of like, you know, fruits, vegetables, nuts, right. seeds sure. when prepared properly, be pressure cooked beans in, in, in the right kinds of ways, but it needs to be done. The vegan diet's tough because it can be done in a healthy way, but it needs to be so dialed in and the margin for error is pretty small if you wanna sustain it over the long haul, yeah. Um, How did you avoid the B vitamin deficiency and the weakness and fatigue that the people I know or my own clients have yeah, that I are mean, vegans? Uh, using using something like, uh, well, one, I did I did have supplements at the time, so I did have okay. supplementation along the way, right? Uh, but like uh, nutritional yeast, spirulina, chlorella, some other like some sources of these things, um, but you know, it's a limited diet like over, over, the, over the long haul. A lot of people find, here's the deal. I say that a plant-based diet, it can be very healing for many people in many circumstances. Like there are healing benefits to, to fasting and also to, you know, to, to doing plant-based diets for some amount of time. And I would say this as well. It's like, I don't want to say there's no problems with having a high, high meat diet. There's a big, there's a big uh, move right now for people who are going carnivore um, and just doing all meat. And people see, seem to have very good health outcomes from that. But there are also harms and problems on that side of the equation as well. I think if we say the longest living people, they eat a lot of fruits and vegetables. They have some kinds of high quality meats and fish in there on occasion, but it's certainly um, a balance of the two. And they're eating foods that work for their bodies, are not creating inflammation by and large. Um, but yeah, I mean, you gotta find the diet that works best for, for you. And if someone's called to a vegan diet, I would say you gotta stay away from the processed stuff, hands down. And the vegans, um, I, I've talked to several people about it. Um, the other substitute is the soy consumption, yeah, that which is really terrible bad. for our low beloved thyroids. I'm, a, I'm team thyroid around here. Mm -hmm. um, and the gluten or the other substitutes that they have to have in order to have a robust meal. Otherwise, yeah. they're eating lettuce and some green well, beans. Here's, 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 a, here's a good meal that would work, like for someone who's athletic and vegan, is um, like soaking soaking some beans and pressure cooking them. It's pretty yeah. well documented that will eliminate the lectin, lectins and putting oh, that on the side. Okay. Of, yeah, so I mean, it, like Dr. Gundry's done all the stuff on the lectins. Right. There's many people who talk about lectins, but lectins are present in all different kinds of foods. Um, and the traditional preparation removes a lot of these. The soaking and the pressure cooking gets rid of pretty much all the lectins and, and even having a little bit of lectin is not a problem. It's not like lectins are all bad. Some of them have anti-cancer properties. So it's not quite that black and white. Um, that being said, like, so imagine some, some uh, quinoa with the black beans and then you have some like the black bean chili in it and then you have some avocado on the side. Like that could be a meal that's, that certainly works. Plant, like plant-based protein shakes can be great with, you know, you could throw MCTs, different kinds of berries, superfoods, plant-based protein powder also can work just fine. Um, you end up probably needing getting a lot of your fat if you're doing a vegan diet, right? Through plant, uh, through fat, like a lot of your calories through through fat sources. You know, you're getting a lot of them probably through avocados, macadamia nuts, and things like this, sure. like clean sources. So it's like a kind of semi-ketogenic like diet, plant-based is yeah. very good. Yeah, um, it's doable. It's restrictive. Uh, it's challenging. Um, and sometimes the body will tell you at the end of these things like, hey, I need some animal protein or, or you know, you, do, you have it and you start to feel phenomenally better. That happens, I think you hear a lot of people sharing those stories. Yeah, um, I talked to all of my guests about this book that I read several months ago, it changed my life. It's Benjamin Bickman's book called Why We Get Sick. Hmm. Have you read that book? He's I the PhD not, no. researcher from um, Salt Lake City, from 
uh, Brigham Young, I believe. And I'm telling you, it has absolutely changed the way I think about so many things because he says why we get sick. He mentions disease after disease after disease, insulin resistance. He said even women who have endometriosis, they have high insulin. Women who have PCOS, we know women with PCOS, high insulin. And so it's attacking the insulin component and making us more insulin sensitive. So I know intermittent fasting does that, hmm. you know. And exercise and he, is the other variable. And exercise, right. And right. so that those are really his two things. Oh, and his other one is lift weights. Right. That's what I'm saying. Specifically weight training, right? Strength yeah. training. And this right. is how this is how we help. And you know, in the beginning of this conversation I said I don't like to major in, in the minors or like help go down the hormone rabbit hole right off the bat. And that's because what we do with our programmers is we standardize their nutrition with clean foods and we have them start to strength train two, three times a week and we have them do some intermittent fasting after thirty days in our program. So you're inherently addressing, and I do agree, like insulin resistance is, is at the core. I'm not gonna say of all disease process, but pretty much all the metabolic syndrome we have right now people are insulin resistant for so many reasons and exercise and intermittent fasting and good nutrition and lowering carb intake all fixes that at its core, so. Well, that's a good thing. Just for someone who's not gonna take part of your program, just some of the things, you know, the the banner you hold high in getting exercise, some type of exercise, do you think seven days a week that they should at least go on a walk? Yes, you know, yes, even, yes. Okay. Well, here's what I'll say. I think I like to draw the distinction between daily exercise or daily daily movement and formal workouts, like two different things. We need right. to move every single day, mm-hmm. hands down. Like mm-hmm. for, for like walking, accumulating steps, movement, mm-hmm. movement. Like the oldest living people on the planet, they have mm-hmm. daily movement baked mm-hmm. in to their routines, period. So get up, morning walk, huge. Get some sunshine. Walk after dinner. They've also shown that it helps glycemic control as well. You right. take a walk after you eat, it right. activates those glucose receptors in the big muscles in your legs, sucks up a lot of that blood sugar, meaning you're gonna have a lower insulin response as a byproduct of that. Um, so daily movement, gotta check that box. But then formal exercise, I think you're doing high intensity exercise in a perfect world, like every other day or to recovery capacity. Like, you know, we, we have our program members do like basically metabolic circuit workouts with weights. So you're doing weight training exercises like squats, shoulder press, rows, push-ups, and you're doing them in a circuit. So you're getting cardio and strength training benefits all in one. It's called metabolic resistance training is the concept. Probably the most effective kind of exercise for people over 40 period. It's time efficient, um, it gives you cardio and strength all in one, and you pulse that a couple times per week, and you're gonna get massive benefit to insulin sensitivity. You get a metabolic boost after you exercise for up to 24 hours, um, and, and it's time efficient. You can do it at home with a pair of dumbbells or kettlebells. Like, it's just, it's a very easy way to, to, to package it all in, but any kind of high intensity exercise is good, whether you're riding your Peloton bike or you're working with a trainer in a gym, you know, lifting weights is kind of like the fountain of youth, not just for the insulin, but it actually it, it actually activates these sirtuin genes, these longevity genes that we have. These sirtuins are activated directly by strength training. Um, strength training is also gonna release growth hormone. It will also release testosterone, right. which is important for right. men and women. Um, right. And it also, it taxes the mitochondria and causes the mitochondria to, to regenerate. It's like use it or lose it is kind of like the, the law of the body. And, and, and the body wants to go, continue to decline as we get past like reproductive age and we get into these later seasons. So we need to do all these things to activate the body and give it a reason to, to maintain. And strength training is, is really the key there. And then you wait then 30 days before you want someone to do uh, tackle intermittent fasting. Is that kind of your philosophy? Well, we have, 
We, we give people, when they join on the program, we give them a couple of different meal timing schedule setups that they can start from day one. Some people, here's the thing, this is why we can't recommend intermittent fasting for everyone, because some people's jobs in their lives, they like particularly love breakfast or they need it, because like, man, I get up at 3 a.m., I work out at five, I need yeah. some food, then they should probably have a meal at that time. So we give a couple different meal timing schedule setups. One of those is intermittent fasting in a 16-8 type window from day one. At, at after 30 days, everyone, we recommend they start doing a once a week dinner to dinner, 24 hour fast. Great. Yeah. So just because there are benefits to getting into a deeper fast, you have dinner on Saturday, you fast until dinner on Sunday. Like that's something that you can incorporate. It is phenomenally effective for helping break through weight loss plateaus if people are stuck. Um, and, and it's very good because we want to have the body become metabolically flexible. We want to have it be able to produce some ketones to burn some carbohydrates and like fasting gives that it gives the body ability to like break down all these stored carbohydrate and then you're in this catabolic state and then you can refuel afterwards. So 24 hour fast is great. And, and then my personal philosophy, although I don't necessarily prescribe this for the program members is I think doing deeper fasting like 72 hours plus a couple times a year is a very good habit. I mean, the benefits that happen with it, I just did a, like last week I did a three day water fast and it is so powerful. It's not necessarily easy, but the research is, is pretty profound that as we age, it activates all the stem cells, recycles all the old immune white blood cells and it, it's very good. And it also cleans out the GI tract. You don't want crap sitting in your GI tract and, and fasting can help with that as well. Uh, do you use any type of supplementation of bone broth or um, I, I'm the a big LMNT believer, salts or anything? I'm a big believer in non, if you're going to do a three-day fast and you're looking for the actual benefits in the research, doing a non-caloric fast is ideal. Um, so no calories, but there is Great. benefit. I also probably do once a year, like a, a one to two week juice fast um, where I'm having juices. Wow. And, and this is, wow. this is this is good for cleaning out your tube. Like this body is built on a central axis and this is important. I know we're probably getting towards the end of this conversation. Yeah, we're but, fine. Okay. The body is built on the central axis of the spine and the digestive tract. Everything is hemispherically mirrored from the central axis. Okay. As we get older, gravity is like creating, creating more compression mm -hmm. on that spine. We need to make sure that spine stays as lengthened as possible. So things like exercise, things like hanging, things like inversion, getting blood flow of that spine so yeah. those nerves don't get compressed and we don't have inflammation and stenosis along that spine is hugely important. You look at someone who's 90 years old, they're, they're crunched over in, in a weird position mm -hmm. because the spine is lost integrity. So movement helps us do that. But then the GI tract is the other thing. We're constantly running food through this tube I believe it's very important that we clean the tube out. If we look at a lot of these old school naturopaths, you know, a couple hundred years ago in, in how they approach treating cancers and different kinds of things, they often did a lot of fasting, a lot of enemas, a lot of juicing. They cleaned out the GI tract. They got rid of like, they, they did lower protein diets um, with high alkalinity, lots of micronutrients. There's something to be said about cleaning the GI tract out. Um, and the first time I did a two week juice fast, I was amazed that at still at two weeks, I was still pooping out stuff. Wow. There's, there's just, we, we, we hold a lot of fecal matter and we do know that at least with colon cancer being a consideration, that the stuff that we have that's sitting in our, our colon is fermented into secondary bile acids and salts that can uh, damage the colonic epithelium and, and can cause some people who have genetic predispositions to get colon cancer. My, my point is clean the tube out. I think it's a good practice. Like maybe there is a deeper cleaning you do once or twice a year. Maybe you do a series of colonics or, or you know, enemas or stuff like this. Um, I think it's a good practice for human health for sure. But you don't think we have to buy into a cleanse. You can just do it with 
your own stuff at home, right? You can, but I think structure is, I, I'm a, such a believer in structure. Like okay. I think the things, I think because ultimately with this health stuff, it's all fun and information until we implement, until we can actually like <laughs> yeah, put right. it on our schedule and be like, I'm doing a one week juice fast. Like, you know, that takes a lot of effort. It takes logistics, it takes scheduling. So I think it's so cool that there's companies out there, whether it's like, like I do these things on my own. Um, my family members use like Prolon. They get one of these Prolon right. fasting programs mm -hmm. where you get a couple mm -hmm. meals here and there. And like, those are yeah. great. Whatever's gonna help you actually implement this stuff into your life and your behaviors, I'm a huge fan of. But I also know like legitimately, you know, the, you can I, I personally can, and I've walked many people through this, do three day water fast. You just drink water and herbal teas for three days and you, you can get great benefit from it. So none of those herbal teas then incite the pancreas to release insulin. There's no- Some can, some okay. can. And then sure. see, then that makes me hungry. So yeah. I do better in a fast if I, I don't have anything and I just have water and maybe yeah. some salt I put on my tongue. Because yeah. if anything even incites a little pancreas response, yeah. dude, I'm hungry. I'm ready for a meal. <laughs> totally. It's amazing. You get that, like, even before you taste anything, the pre-cephalic insulin secretion yes. just from, like, all of that. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, it can be. I think it's, well, as people fast and, and playing around with the 24-hour fast is a good habit because you get a huge growth hormone benefit. Um, and here's what I'll say, too. It's, it's kind of like back on the philosophy side of this thing. My personal understanding is this body needs to maintain a balance between anabolism and catabolism, the yawn and the ying of like this, this body system. And fasting is the catabolic side of this equation. It's our body's chance to break down um, that which is no longer in use and not no longer serving. And, and we're always constantly in this fed state. What is the fed state? Well, it's, it's insulin activating mm -hmm. mTOR, creating protein right. synthesis and storing sugars. It's the building up. Well, as we get older, the immune system also gets senescent. It gets less competent. Exercise, sunshine, good nutrition helps with this stuff. But I think it becomes even more important as we get older to prioritize giving our bodies a chance to catabolize and break down denatured proteins, denatured cells to take out the garbage because the immune system is getting a little bit weaker with age. This is why a lot of times we have, we have such a huge spike in cancer. I mean, there's many reasons for this, but the immune system is constantly scanning and getting rid of cancer cells. And I believe there's a benefit to cancer for many people in terms of making the body more robust by allowing fasting to help clear out damaged cells and junk, living a clean life where you're not getting exposed to all sorts of toxicants and pollutants. And, and of course, like, you know, following a good, healthy lifestyle. But like the fasting, I believe, is, a, is the body's chance to take out the cellular junk. And I think we should be doing that, you know, maybe daily like you are, but at least weekly. And a simple habit I think can help for, for people who are maybe getting started on this is just to have dinner earlier. Like have dinner yeah. around mm -hmm. five, 6 p.m. and then mm -hmm. just like stop eating. And then you start to get into like a semi-fasted period. Even if you are a breakfast person at nine, if you stopped eating at six, you still got a pretty decent amount of fasting. And there's, they show that there's even benefits to 12 to 14 hours of, of a fast. It's something. It's yeah. at least something. You know, you were talking about autophagy, which is that yes. cellular cleanout, which of course won the Nobel Peace Prize um, in 2016. So before 2016, did we know the benefits then of this this autoph you know autophagy, which is you know French for the self cleaning? Yeah. Did we know the body did that before 2016? I'm not sure. I, I'm sure I some people so. did. I'm sure some people did. I don't think it was mainstream. I think people have been yeah. studying and looking at fasting for a long time. And I, I also think that there's 
this has been something that's steeped into human culture in pretty much every major religious tradition. There is right. some kind of fasting ritual as a basis of this to clean right. the body out. And in fact, if you want to go down the rabbit hole, there are even texts that talk about using, they used to use gourds, these, these gourd fruits for enemas. They were cleaning up the GI tract <laughs> well, back in the day. There you go. So I think we figured out some stuff, right? I mean, right. there's a cleaning mechanism to this and and also, you know, from cognitive benefits too, I think fasting is great. You, it causes the, the growth of new neurons, makes you a little sharper too. Uh, what grieves my heart as a health coach is when, and I always say, I, I, and in fact, I'm telling you now, none of this is medical advice in mm-hmm. case my attorney's listening. You know, we're just two humans talking. But is when I do have clients who are working so hard to try to incorporate a fasting regimen into their life them saying well i just talked to my doctor and he wants me to eat every three hours yeah right and i just go i i don't know where because again I, i'm not here to get into a pissing contest with their doctor mm-hmm. but just to say you know this is how i say it i may be wrong look up the scientific research behind autophagy and intermittent fasting the science science not anecdotal but the science mm-hmm. and then take that to your doctor and just ask your doctor would you mind reading about this Mm-hmm. And and maybe we can all come to terms and sing Kumbaya, my Lord, Kumbaya, and have a candlelight yeah. vigil. You know, we're <laughs> all going to get along on this. Right. Because, can't, like you said, if all major religions and everyone, our ancestors, were fasting yeah. long before there was, we were never made, created to eat all day, to yeah. digest all day. Yep. Never. And you can't convince me. But I tell you who the big argument comes from is often not just the medical community, because I do feel like some are coming over to my side. But um, still the personal trainers. The personal trainers are still telling, because I'll I'll see them on their posts. They'll say, don't forget to eat at 6, then at 9, then at noon, then at (laughs) 3, then at 6. I mean, when does it end? Yeah. I, I, I came from, I have a background in the fitness world. I was very into like competitive bodybuilding fitness for 10 years. Oh, and yeah. That was certainly like the big thing. They were idea yeah. like, you know, small meals every few hours. And, and I think what we do know is, is supported is it's really good to have discrete meals where the body can go through its digestive processes and then a longer period without food. And I think that's different for everyone based on their energy demands. But I mean, at least four hours in between meals. I mean, yeah. in, 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 you know, obviously you can go as long as 24 hours plus between meals and, and have great health effect. But the whole snacking, like the constantly snacking and constantly yes. stimulating these digestive organs to do yes. more work is not good. You wanna have the body go through its digestive process. It senses that food is coming in. It goes through digestion. The pancreas is releasing all its enzymes. The stomach has created the right pH and we go through this process. Blood sugar rises. Insulin does its job, clear things out. And now the body should be back into a state. You don't want to disturb that whole system again in another two hours with a snack per se. So this is why we're big components of structure. So we, we give our, yeah. our program members, maybe they're like, you break your fast at 11.30, you have a small, you know, healthy blood sugar stabilizing snack at around three and you have dinner at six. Like that could be a setup. It doesn't have to be the setup, but it could be. You could also have breakfast at eight, snack or lunch at noon. Maybe you have a snack at three and you have dinner at six. Another possibility. I don't think there's any real reason for anyone to be eating more than four times a day. And I'm talking three meals with one snack outside of if you're like a competitive athlete that literally needs to eat that many calories just to like maintain your weight. and you just can't shove down as much food. I think for most people, they'll probably even benefit from having only two meals a day, and and a mini meal, a mini meal if needed. Yeah, uh, one in a snack has done well for me. There you go. 
you know, you got to figure out which works for you. Yeah, that's right. Bio-individuality. I know that just with my own, when my children were here for Thanksgiving, um, how some tolerate dairy, how some tolerate wheat. And my husband, and I even said, we go, we're the same people that produce these children and they're all so different. And it's just like with us. And so my son and I are longtime intermittent fasters, but his window's about eight hours because yeah. he doesn't want to lose a pound. He just loves it for the ketones that are firing yeah. and the, the brain, you know, the clarity that you have when you're fasting, which is insane. So it is very individual. So thank you, you so first, much. For, one, one question for oh, you. Just yes, I know sir. you're about to wrap us, but yeah. when do you have your first meal? Um, um, is it no? Is your first meal your biggest meal? Is what I would like to know. Um, because remember, I told you when I go to eat, I have it triggers a hunger in me that I really do have my bigger meal about three thirty ish, three or three t- today maybe three thirty picking up grandkids kind mm-hmm. of thing, um, and then I get full because. Um, of appetite correction mm-hmm. that happens. It's one of yeah. the miracles or phenomenas of um, intermittent fasting. So I'm really kind of full. And so if I do fix my family food, I might just have a little of the protein out of it because I know mm-hmm. I do well with protein, you know, have the meat or whatever's in it and kind of have a snack. So let's say in a perfect world, I'll eat today at 3.30, but I'll finish up by 6.30 because mm-hmm. I'm satisfied. I'm not on a diet. I don't restrict myself in any way. I'm I'm plum full. Nice. Can't eat anymore. You know, and uh, so last week during Thanksgiving, because we were having longer eating windows, I didn't punish myself afterwards. It's just my body said, I don't need anything. And so, you know, I may have had a, I don't know if I had a 24 hour. No, I did have a 24 hour fast probably one day then. Just because I got busy and because I... I have a lot of stored fat. My body can still, I mean, we all do. Anybody in the West, typically, you know, Western civilization or industrialized countries, we know that we can go a few days without eating. We're going to be fine. So I know that's a long answer. So I, yeah. I like having my bigger meal when I open my window because I'm hungry. <laughs> nice. I mean, that's why I was saying I can't have the herbal teas. Yeah. Um, so yesterday I did the LMNT um, salt um, electrolytes because yeah. I really like I, I really feel like that helps me get through things but I hadn't eaten yet and my daughter had one too and she said she goes oh it made me hungry and I said because it's flavored it yeah it has a strawberry flavor or something in it and that just shows everybody listening and sweetness even, right? that's right sweetness your body sees that recognize that mm-hmm. as food it tells the pituitary tells the pancreas Send that insulin, bring that insulin in, let's lower that blood glucose. And when that blood glucose is lowered, all of a sudden you're going, I am, I need something to eat. Mm -hmm. So that's why, you know, as you know, we have to first, when we introduce people to this way of living, that's why you can't, don't come at me about your Diet Coke having zero calories. You know, it doesn't matter. Your body still sees it as food. And that's why you get hungry. That Diet Coke isn't helping you in the morning get through your fast it's making you it's making it harder yeah and i will say the caffeine too has a rebound effect of, of can make you more tired because what it does is actually blocks the signals in the brain with adp that makes you feel like you're it's like borrowed energy like caffeine can be beneficial oh. but if, so so like it's caffeine blocks the signal in your brain that tells you you're tired it blocks adenosine binding to certain key receptors among other things that it does and so you you take the the maybe the blood got sugar it. presophalic insulin effect of the diet coke yes. plus some caffeine uh-huh. And you uh-huh. got a recipe for being on a roller coaster with your energy throughout the day. So do you encourage people to drink? Because a lot of the intermittent fasting community drinks 
I'm not a coffee drinker, but drinks black coffee. They mm. say it helps them reach ketosis it and does. autophagy. It produces and all these more things. ketones. This is well known. Even in the presence of carbohydrates, caffeine induces ketone production. So, wow. I mean, but I think the it comes down to it, the, it's not it's not as simple as like how is your sleep? What's your stress levels? Are you using this as a crutch? What like which caffeine sources? I have a little bit of an allergic reaction personally to coffee, but like how does tea work mm-hmm. for your body? This is a nuanced thing that it, I don't know if we want to open this can of worms at the uh, at the midnight hour of this, but uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I think that there are the caffeine can be enjoyed as a part of a healthy diet. Coffee has some health benefits and some longevity benefits if you can tolerate it. Um, but I think if you're reliant on these things and your nervous system depends on them to feel good and to feel well, there is another level of health that health that I think is deeper that, you know, these things can be tools, not like crutches. Okay. And on that note, we're dropping the mic and sending everybody to your website that's in the show notes. And thank you so much. I love all the information. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks for listening to the Lisa Fisher Said Podcast. Be sure to hit subscribe and download all the episodes and leave a review, won't you? The Lisa Fisher Said Podcast is produced by ClantonCreative.com. Creative.com.